what is most needed for open transformation to be successful across any organization or government is courageous leadership and a shared vision that everyone gets behind for the change that needs to take place. It's not enough to say we want to change. It has to be believed and followed through and measured, and then everyone is empowered and inspired by that. I want to help people find their true passion. I think that is so important because then you're able to lead people with that same level of compassion and you're able to know when to say, no, I'm sorry, this doesn't align with my core values. If we aren't grounded in who we are and our core values, it's very easy to not know how to make those decisions that are best for you and your family. You are good enough, just the way you are. Go for it. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Dickers. I'm here today with Margaret Dawson, who is the VP and Chief Digital Officer of Red Hat. A very warm welcome, Margaret. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Margaret, you are a tech leader, strategic marketeer, public speaker, a coach and a mentor, but you're also a snorter, a Mustang lover and a baby whisperer. <laughs> and uh, we'll get into uh, all of these in this conversation. So Margaret Wonderful. has worked at Microsoft, at HP, at Amazon, among others. And for the last five and a half years, Margaret, you have uh, been VP of Red Hat, where you are now the CDO. So tell us a little bit okay. more about you. Uh, what's your background and how did you arrive in this position of Chief Digital Officer? Thank you. Uh, it's a great question because my path was not a, a perfect straight line. Uh, I think we all think that we're going to just go up the ladder and it's this beautiful path that we take. Um, I actually started in the automotive industry in Detroit, mm -hmm. right out of college, okay. um, because I grew up in that industry. My dad worked for Ford and Toyota, and mm -hmm. it was what I knew. And, uh, you know, using your network as it is today worked then. And so spent my early career years there. And then I did a little bit of a pivot and literally got on an airplane and flew to Asia and ended up spending 10 years in the greater China region, uh, mostly oh. in communications and journalism. So my, my background, both education and early work years was very much in marketing communications and mm -hmm. journalism. And it was when I was with Business Week magazine interviewing all these tech leaders around Taiwan and Hong Kong that I remember sitting there looking across the table and saying, I want to do that job. Like, that's a cool job. Having no idea, you know, that, you know, I wasn't an engineer, uh, you know, all those things that, that you think you need to have. And mm -hmm. so when I came back to the United States, I started working for Amazon, as you mentioned, and just over time took that core foundation of communications and marketing and started doing more and more technical roles and mm -hmm. more and more leadership roles uh, so that I started doing you know, product management and product marketing and worked very, very closely with engineering and just continued to, to grow and learn and be curious. And I think the thing that always was consistent was that desire to understand how things work. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to cars, you know, uh, technologies and the passion for that. And then trying to figure out how that helps customers or people solve some problem. 
So okay. typical change the world kind of mentality, but in the technical space. So it's, it's been a, a really fun path, but not necessarily one that, that looks like it makes sense if you looked at it. So you've been uh, more than five years with Red Hat. If you, for those few people that don't know Red Hat, how would you describe Red Hat in a couple of sentences? <laughs> and what is it that Red Hat does really, really well? So Red Hat, at the simplest terms, is an enterprise software company that uses the open source development model, which means we take all of this wonderful innovation from open source communities all over the world and make it um, secure, stable, supported for enterprises and governments. And so what we do really well is allow you to use the latest innovations, but make sure it's stable and secure because for enterprises, you can't have chaos, you know, in yep. your IT environment. And so, and we're constantly looking at what is that next thing and what do our customers need to move forward and be successful? Mm -hmm. So Red Hat has become quite a, a big company now, more than 15,000 employees yeah. all around the world. And uh, one of the most important teams that you're working around uh, nowadays is open transformation. So yep. could you explain us a little bit, what do you mean with open transformation? What does that stand for? Absolutely. I think most people will recognize the terms digital transformation or business transformation. I mean, the key of all of this is the transformation part, the fact that we have to change. Mm -hmm. And core to that is that technology is no longer just running the business. It is driving competitive advantage um, and technical innovation to deliver customer experiences. So it's this connection of amazing experiences that is being mm -hmm. driven uh, by digital technologies and the fact that organizations cannot do business as usual. Uh, and the part of it that is different from a Red Hat perspective is that open. Yep. And you'll, you'll hear this over and over again. And we, we talked about what does Red Hat do? And, you know, our whole approach is using open source technology. And in this case, open not only means grounding the digital transformation in open source technologies, but how architecturally you're allowing things to work together, to integrate, how culturally you're thinking about collaboration in different ways, how developers can move and have flexibility and applications can move across environments. And there's, there's kind of three legs to the stool, so to speak, around open yep. transformation. And that's open architecture, open processes, and the last one, which frankly, we are probably talking to customers about more than any other part, is open mm -hmm. culture. So people, the people okay. aspect of it. So let's talk about that first. How does okay. open culture matter when you're doing a transformation, when you're trying to innovate, and, and how do companies best create the necessary culture change for that? You probably have seen that most companies, when they need to change, it is really mm -hmm. hard. And yeah. the biggest thing you need to do is break down the silos. And every organization, I don't care if it's a government, uh, an enterprise, uh, you know, even a, a smaller company, you put 50 people in a room and people start having kind of centers of excellence or power bases or, or whatever you want to call it. And mm -hmm. so with open culture, you start to look at kind of the spirit of open source communities in your company. So where great ideas can come from anywhere, right? Not just top down, not just leaders, but literally you appreciate and empower and allow fast failures, great ideas from, you know, literally a developer sitting in, you know, Brno, Czech Republic. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, the collaboration, the ability to, 
you know, team of teams kind of thing is, is one way to look at it, right? Where you might have squads of people. And so you're brokering relationships, you're brokering transformation projects where people are working together from all different parts of the organization mm -hmm. uh, and you're focused on a shared goal. And I would say on the cultural side, the one thing that really makes a difference is the leaders do need to have a shared vision and something that is inspiring the entire company to believe in this transformation that we're going through. And what happens so often is people focus on the technology to drive change, and they don't focus on the people and behavioral and inspirational things that yep. need to happen. People want to believe in something, right? Bigger so, than themselves. Absolutely. So you need a kind of an open leadership almost, right? I love that term. Yeah, because it is that transparency, that meritocracy, that empowering people across the organization. I think I'll steal that term from you because I, I, I love that. It, it really is. It's a, we used to call it the open door policy. It's more than that. It's really, it's being open to anyone in your company driving change and having innovation and having great ideas and empowering them to go with it. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Now, maybe you can give us a couple of examples of, of, of your clients that have really done a great mm -hmm. job. In, in making that cultural change and creating an, an open culture for, for, for innovation? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple that come to mind. One is um, a financial services institution in Europe, um, Barclays Bank uh, would be one that comes to mind, where mm -hmm. they really set out and they set a vision to be the bank of the future. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just that that became a rallying cry. You know, it did, but it, it drove how they looked at investments across the company, whether it was technical or, or people or process or whatever. And mm -hmm. everyone knew what it meant to be that bank of the future. And it sounds simplistic, but it really is challenging. And underneath that were very clear metrics and KPIs that everyone knew what success looked like and what being a bank of the future meant. So that's one that comes to mind. Another one was Cathay Pacific, which is a very large airlines out of Hong Kong. And they really embraced DevOps and mm -hmm. the way that different parts of the organization worked with the functional lines of business to create mm -hmm. innovative applications and that, that changed the way they did things. I mean, starting to, you know, deliver 10 times faster in their, in their um, uh, delivery of new applications or new features. So things really changed and moved more quickly, but it took this collaboration and this new ways of working to do it. And, and those are both very traditional industries, right? So we see it across whether it's oil and gas or, um, you know, uh, airlines or, you know, industries that you may not think of as being innovative or fast moving, but they're yep. embracing this because they know they need to change to compete and to grow and to continue to evolve to be successful. How do you look at diversity in this context? I mean, having a diverse workforce and diverse teams, how important is that in creating an open culture? I love that you asked that question. Thank you. Uh, it is vital, actually, because if you think about it, if you have a bunch of people all coming from the same perspective, the same background, the same work style, even, um, you're not going to have the level of innovation. And there's been amazing research on this. I, I read a report not long ago that showed that diverse teams produce like two times faster the results with mm -hmm. half the meetings and I, there was like several other things where the results were statistically significant. And so it's not just about doing the right thing because we all know we should embrace diversity and inclusion. It actually has business impact. 
So as you're building these teams, you know, not only looking at across the different parts of your organization, but looking at different types of people, different mm-hmm. cultural backgrounds, different educational backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, different genders. And if you yep. put those teams together, you will see magic happen. I've seen yep. it myself and it, it's amazing. Now, our industry is not, not really known to be very diverse. I mean, also in, in, in leadership, tech leadership, you don't see many females. So, so how are we going to change that? And, 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 and is it really important to have more female uh, leadership? My answer is going to be yes, of course. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's a male-female thing, right? I would go back to just the, the diversity of thought, the diversity of background, the diversity of style. And yep. personally, I do think we need more women in technology in general, mm-hmm. but more women leaders overall. Yep. Um, we also need more people of color uh, in technology. The, the statistics or the ratios are incredibly poor, whether it's United States or other parts of the world. And mm-hmm. it's a few different things that we need to do. One is we've got to change it at around the age of eight or nine. The thing that I've seen, and there's a ton of research that backs this up, is that mm-hmm. children start getting what I call input about the age of eight or nine that starts to limit what they think is possible for themselves. Yeah. And Girls and boys both receive it, but they receive different input in general, right? And think back to when you were were eight or nine. For me, you know, when I was in middle school, I was literally told I didn't need to take the hard math class at a time where I loved algebra. But, you know, they were like, well, why do you need to take algebra too? Why don't you take home economics? You know, it turned out I was a horrible sewer, so I don't know why they did that. But, you know, but that's the kind of input you get or, you know, be nice or be quiet or, you know, boys be tough or take math or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. But we have to be really, really conscious of the input we give. It's always good intentions. The problem is, is that you start to tell that child that they are limited in what they can do. And it is it is impacting 100 percent the number of girls that go into STEM-related courses. And we see a line that literally drops off at each stage. Middle school, it starts to drop off. High school, it drops off. College, it drops off. And then, you know, the amount of people you have in the pipeline, right, gets smaller and smaller. We have to increase the pipeline. It's a funnel problem, really, you know, to use marketing (laughs) terms. So we all need to embrace that. And then I would just say there's one other thing for women that I think we need to do is that, the women that do make it need to intentionally support and empower other women, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of all colors and, and, and backgrounds and cultures. And yep. we too often do not do that. And so it's kind of my mission to send you know, that message out. It's that unless we intentionally support each other, it's never yep. going to change. So you're a coach and a mentor. That so so you you have an, an extra emphasis on making sure that you mentor and coach mm-hmm. future um, female leadership then or diverse leadership. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think you know my mentoring and coaching is to men and women, but for the women there there is a particular passion I would say to push them to take risks, to encourage mm-hmm. them um, to try different things, to encourage them to be authentic and find their voice that is authentic to them, they don't need to try to be something else. Because the biggest thing I see for a lot of women in the tech industry, or think of other male-dominated industries, there's others besides tech, that Mm -hmm. you think you have to act a different way instead of letting your 
femininity and your competence be your power. And so whatever that means to you, you know, learning how to let that shine. Okay. So to conclude on, on open culture, enterprises can <laughs> learn a lot from the open source community and, and, and they can mm -hmm. really enrich themselves by uh, adopting a diversity culture as well. And so culture is really key to transformation innovation, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about open process. What do you mean with that? What, what, uh, enlighten us on what do you mean with uh, open processes? It's the perfect building block on top of culture, right? Because if you mm -hmm. think about it, you have all these people working together. How are they doing this work, right? So mm -hmm. the processes are the way we are working. And there's a couple different ways to think about it. It could be that collaboration, the way that we are bringing in all these people together based on that cultural change. But it's also these agile teams, the way we are moving more quickly, um, you know, failing fast. You hear about this all the time, right? Fail fast and move forward. And that's, that's a very open process kind of way to think or an agile way to think. Um, there's some specific things around DevOps, right? Bringing those, those processes together or DevSecOps, you sometimes hear now, where, where security is just embedded um, yeah. as part of that. Um, I will tell you that part of the process to be open is also going back to that metrics or those KPIs that mm -hmm. if we all know what success looks like, you know, we allow those processes to be more agile within it. Um, but you also want to remove manual processes. I mean, there's a huge piece. It's like just automate everything that you can. Let the humans focus on more strategic, higher value work and automate everything else. And so, you know, to do that, you've got to make sure things are integrated and they work together. And that requires openness from a technical perspective, right? Which is going to lead into our next topic. Mm -hmm. um, but you need to have processes that allow you to move path to product faster and get new experiences out faster. So it's kind of a combination of ways of working, using technology to automate and remove obstacles and to integrate. Um, and then it's all built on that cultural element and the shared vision of success. Margaret, let's talk about open architecture and open technologies. Why are these crucial uh, and, and why are they a catalyst for change? I love talking about the architectural approach more than the mm -hmm. technology, because the open technologies we've talked about, right? You need to have that foundation of open technologies that are based on open source, that are using that latest innovation, but doing it in a way that leverages you know, open APIs and, and integration and all those things so they work together. But it's that architectural approach that is really important where you're allowing developers to use the tools and the processes and the technologies they want wherever they want to do it. So with open architecture, think of the infrastructure really as an abstraction, right? Okay. It shouldn't matter if we are on premises or in a public cloud or in a, you know, a distributed system on the edge, the mm -hmm. experience should somehow be fluid and, and be consistent. So architecturally, you have to think about that. And one of the things I work with customers all the time is thinking about standardizing some of those layers of your architecture in order to scale and in order mm -hmm. to have that abstraction and the yeah. portability across any environment. And, and I'll tell you, it sounds counterintuitive when you say it, um, but what's happened over the years is every organization that gets to be a certain size has allowed multiple stacks 
of, yeah. of infrastructure or technologies to happen. And it was good. It was good intent, right? It was different lines of business. It was different companies within a company, you know, whatever it was. But what's mm-hmm. happened now is you're saying, great, we need to have a way to aggregate data and, and bring incredible insights, you know, into uh, how we're using the data, right? So it's mm-hmm. not just sitting in 9 million different places. Um, we need to have applications work together for the customers. We need to create a more, you know, integrated experience for both our internal and external users. Well, you can't do that when you've got 35 different operating systems, 12 different integration platforms, uh, you know, application platforms that, you know, are in a bunch of different places and use different tools and developers have no consistent way to do things. So if you think about those layers or those fabrics of your architecture, what bets do you want to make to standardize so that you can save cost and you can scale and you can move faster? And then the agility comes at the next layer up, right? More at the application and the experience layer where you can have more um, experimentation and agility, but you have stability and scale and cost effectiveness below. You explained me that there's like three layers in the architecture. Can you drill down a little bit what these three layers are? Yeah, I think about it at the kind of experience layer. So, you know, how are people experiencing the technology? So think about Mm -hmm. if you go to a website or you go to an application and how you move around um, that application Mm -hmm. or or experience or that web uh, website. The second would be what I would call the the developer tools, the developer platforms. Like how are we building applications, right? And that there would be kind of a a management and automation layer there as well, right? Mm -hmm. So how is everything being automated, managed, developed? And then there's the infrastructure layer. Like think of that as the piping, right? And how is it making everything run? How are we keeping things secure? How are we scaling when we need to up and down? Uh, and, And how are we having a global footprint while still being relevant to local compliance mandates and all of that. So it's not perfect. I mean, there's, you know, going back to my network security days, there was the OSI stack, which is, you know, seven layers. So I'm being a little bit um, cheating here and making it to three. But if if you think Mm -hmm. about it in those three areas, um, you know, what decisions do you make? Where do you need consistency or standards? And where can you allow agility for your functional lines or your lines of business or your different parts of the government? And and those are really good discussions to have, right? But it's all got to be based on what are we trying to do for the business and the customer? It's got to be grounded in that. And why are we doing this and transforming? So you start with the customer and then you go to the applications and then you end up with infrastructure and cloud, right? And data. Yeah. And that, there. Of course. <laughs> so of let's course. talk about always back about... to data. It's always yeah. going to go back to data. <laughs> let's talk a bit more about the the cloud. I mean, and and what's the role of mm-hmm. Red Hat in managing public cloud and hybrid cloud? How do you see uh, your role there? We approach that. You're not going to be surprised by this. So our strategy is we call open hybrid cloud, and mm-hmm. the whole reason is is our platforms, whether it be our OpenShift container platform, which is uh, Kubernetes and has orchestration for all the applications, container based applications, our automation and management, or our Linux operating system is our platforms that can move across environments. So open hybrid cloud is the promise that you can have an application or a developer environment or an experience on premises in a private cloud, multiple public clouds, all the way out to the edge. And you still can have that that consistency. So it's this openness, it's this portability, it's this flexibility 
Um, But it's all based on the foundation of consistency, stability, security, scalability, where you need it. So it's really about choice. And that's a key part of open that we haven't really talked about. Um, It's not being locked into any one environment. And it's funny because when people think about public cloud, they don't think about in terms of lock-in. But at the end of the day, if you have all your applications and data in a single public cloud, moving that out or moving it to another public cloud is not a simple task. So our kind of value proposition overall is if you are on OpenShift and you want to have an application in Azure, in AWS, in IBM Cloud, in Google Cloud, in a small regional cloud, in a government cloud, you have the flexibility to move that around and your developers don't care, right? They have the same experience. They have the same environment. You manage that application in the same way and you can look at the dependencies. Um, The other thing I will tell you that I talk to customers about a lot is this dependency Mm -hmm. um, idea that people think, oh, I'm gonna move this application to the cloud or I'm gonna move this data to the cloud. No application lives on an island or is you know by itself. There are tens of hundreds of thousands of dependencies with other applications with other policies, with access control rules, with data sources. And so you've got to look at all those interdependencies and what that means to move something. Or if you're building something new, where are those dependencies? And that's a really important architectural consideration to make. Okay, so we talked about open culture, open processes, open architecture. Let's talk a little bit more about technology. What are the, for you, the most exciting new technology Mm. areas that are popping up and that that you think are crucial for transformation? So one of the things that I worked on several years ago, which was really looking at distributed decentralized systems and whether it's storage or other parts of of our environment. And I think you're going to be seeing that more and more, how we can have really decentralized distributed systems where we can have sensors on the edge and intelligence back at a a data center or smaller, more pod-like distributed data centers. So it's really helping us move closer to the data, get insights faster, make decisions faster, and be much more agile in how we work as a business using that technology. So that's one area I'm really excited about. 5G is going to help that a lot, right? So we need to have faster um, you know, bandwidth and, and faster processing and faster transmission and all those things. So 5G, I would throw in there. Edge obviously is implied in that. So I would throw edge in there as well. Um, everything around data. I, I just, it's amazing to me how fast we are moving with data. Um, quantum computing, uh, you know, I just read an article That's yesterday about IBM's. One, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. It's, un, you know, singularity. I, I actually think it's so funny. I feel like we're living in a sci fi novel, which, you know, those of us that grew up with Star Trek, it's like it's here, yep. you know. <laughs> um, but, but it's amazing stuff. I mean, all the stuff we're doing with robotics and, and you know, quantum computing, AI, ML, it's, it's all yep. intersecting, right? All these technological advances are starting to come together. And how does yep. that influence? you know, us as humans, um, and how does it influence what we can do for our customers and how we can have better experiences. Um, And then there's other things like, you know, microservices that give us an easier way to build and and, uh, modernize applications. I look at Kubernetes and, you know, containers that it's still early days, right? People are still Mm -hmm. really uh, learning how to take care of those those types of, of technologies. And there's things like serverless and infrastructure as code. I mean, there's just so many things happening. And I think the question is, as as a vendor, I will tell you, we tend to be about five or 10 years ahead 
of the mainstream market. So most of our enterprise and government customers are still working to modernize and optimize their technical debt or their, yeah. their existing IT, but they need to start taking advantage of these new things. And, and I, that's what I love, right, is having that real conversation. It's like, we're not saying you throw this out. It's impossible. You don't just lift and shift everything or throw out you know, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's how you do all of those things. And it kind of goes back to those standardized layers. Like, can you start to have technologies that allow you to both modernize and have new innovation? And the answer is yes, you know, and that's, that's when it really gets exciting. Okay, let's, let's sum up a little bit this, this whole open transformation uh, story. So what for you is today most needed in large organizations to be successful in transformation? One is leadership and vision. Okay. And maybe this is, sounds too simplistic, but I can't tell you how many times I will talk to leaders and just getting to have a shared vision and metrics of success across the entire company or across an entire government is the thing that is keeping true transformation from happening. And then underneath that, that would drive the breaking down of those silos, all those things we talked about, about collaboration and innovation. But I will tell you, it takes leadership that is willing to take risk, that is willing to look at the, um, you know, improvement for the whole over their piece. And I could tell you again and again, whether it's sitting down with CIOs of government agencies, whether it's sitting with, you know, leadership across a, uh, an enterprise organization, it is so hard for them to step out of their box, take off their hat and think about as a company, as an organization, as a government, what is, what is the thing we need to do? If there was one thing we all needed to rally around, right, to transform, to give what our constituents or our customers or our users need, what is it? And then mm -hmm. how do we all support that? Because then it, it just changes things. And then you can have that bottoms up innovation. You can have all those wonderful things we talked about. But I do believe it, it takes a vision and it takes, you know, courageous leadership to change. Let's talk about how marketing and digital are organized in Red Hat. Inside your organization, I mean, you are the chief digital officer. What does that mean in Red Hat? What is fundamentally your role today? I think it means something similar in most organizations. And at the end of the day, uh, digital is organized differently in, in every company. But I see myself being responsible for that digital experience. So every time a user or customer tries to interact or connect with Red Hat, mm -hmm. I want to make that experience amazing. I want to make it personalized. I want to make it relevant. I want to make it timely. Um, and I want them to see that Red Hat is there to help them. And if, it, if it's complicated or it's hard or they can't find the information, then I've broken that promise. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I do, I'm thinking about that user and customer in. Mm -hmm. um, organizationally, not everything digital sits in the digital organization. And, and I think that's true for, for most CDOs. It, it's almost yep. impossible because you have things even in corporate IT. You have things in the customer success organization. You have things in marketing communications, right? All events right now are virtual. That's a digital experience. So it's yep. how do you paint that vision of what that user experience is? How do you win the user? Mm -hmm. um, and then all the things from your website content to, you know, the omni-channel experiences, your social media, your content, your events, 
all of that should allow the user and the customer to interact with you for their success, not yeah. necessarily just for yours, right? I can imagine that right that there you have a CMO, Chief Marketing Officer, and you have mm -hmm. a CDO. How, how do you split up the work between the two of you? So I report to our CMO. Uh, so I do all the work and he's the leader. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, we, we actually collaborate beautifully. And, and we really, you know, we have a leadership team under the CMO uh, that's, you know, marketing communications, the digital team, um, global demand center that's, you know, ABM, account-based marketing and, and customer marketing. Um, and uh, operations, martech, martech, marketing technology. And, you know, it's really become so fluid. And so the CMO's job today is really making sure that marketing is working together with the rest of the company. Um, like I said, the, the CMO needs to work with the CIO in a totally different way. It needs to work with customer success. It needs to work with um, engineering and, and the product team. And so I really feel like marketing has become so much more embedded and important. It's not just about promoting something, right? Yep. It used to be, oh, here's the product, go promote it. You know, our job is to bring in that voice of the customer, to be the user, and that goes back into everything that is done for the product or for the platforms or by IT. It has to be all about what the customer is trying to do and understanding who the customer is, their challenges, their goals, and how we can help them be successful. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about you. I mean, you, the digital team within Red Hat, uh, it's, it's more than 100 people that you manage in, in different smaller teams. So what is your management style? How do you make sure that your teams have success? It's interesting because uh, I think about management style and I think about leadership, and I think you have the same uh, mm -hmm. mindset on that. So from a management style, I see my job as really providing the operational excellence mm -hmm. as well as the career development that people need. So from a management okay. perspective, I think about transparency. Am I providing them with all the information they need? And I tend to be a, an overly transparent person, I would say, and not, not from a feeling perspective, but any information I have, if there's mm -hmm. not a reason for me to share it, I share it, right? So I make sure my team knows as much as I do. Um, okay. You know, I make sure the door is open, so to speak. So I don't care what level people are at. You know, I make it very clear that anyone can reach out to me. Anyone can ask me a question. There's no, you know, hierarchical rules um, in organizations that I manage. Yep. And then it's making sure people have clear career opportunities. You know, what does a career path look like? And then I would just say I'm really fairly religious about what I would call a, an operational cadence. So how we manage our budgets, how we manage our meetings. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the five dysfunctions of a team or the advantage by Patrick Lencioni, um, no. but that's kind of my management Bible, I would say, or leadership Bible. Um, but there's a way you have daily standups, you know, weekly meetings, you know, how you uh, work with your team. And that's really important, right? How you develop that cadence and the way that you manage just what you're doing, the work that is being done is really important. And I think sometimes we underestimate that as we get you know, more and more senior, but managing people and processes is really important. Yeah. And how easy is it for, for Red Hat and, and, and for you um, to attract top talent? I mean, you're a big leader in, in, in technology, so many CIOs that, that we talk to on a, on a daily basis, they, they have a hard time in this war for talent to attract the right people. How easy yeah. or difficult is yeah. it for you guys? 
I think that there are challenges like everyone has, right? The one advantage is we are doing cool stuff and everyone wants to work for something that inspires, right? We're using the latest technology. So if you're an engineer, a developer, you're going to work with cool technologies that are changing the world. Um, but overall, I would say we are a very distributed company. So while we do have headquarters, you know, pre-COVID, um, I'm assuming we'll be back in the office at some point, but we've always been a highly distributed company. Um, so if I look at my team now, or if I look at the team I had previously when I was on the products and technology side, I have people all over the world, right? And so we work a very global operation. And I think that has a benefit in recruiting. You know, you don't have to be sitting in Silicon Valley or London or Munich. You can really be sitting anywhere. And if you're qualified for that job, we want you. We want the best people wherever you are. Um, so I think that's a huge advantage. I think also, honestly, we have had such amazing growth and success. Uh, and even as being part of IBM now, that growth continues. And I think people want to be part of something that is moving forward, that is driving change, that has business impact um, culturally. And lastly would be that is our open organizational culture attracts mm -hmm. a lot of people. People just want to work there because it's Red Hat. I can't tell you how many people I interview that they say, I don't care what the job is. I want to work at Red Hat. I want to work at this company. And I don't think a lot of companies have that. And so no, I think that's, that's a, big, a huge big benefit. advantage that you have right. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about your, your leadership, Margaret. I mean, you're, um, you're a manager, but you're also a leader. And, and maybe a good way to ask this is, what do you think that your people, the people that work with you, what do they say about you when you're not around? What kind of leader do they, um, mm. do they look up to uh, in, in you? I think there's, there's a few terms that, that people use. I mean, one is inspiring. And, mm. and I think that leaders do need to inspire, um, whether that's your energy or whether that's your vision or whether that's the way you treat your people. Uh, people want to be inspired by their leader. I think it's just... Mm -hmm. I mean, whether it's government or company. And I have heard that term. And I, it sounds kind of weird to say I am inspiring because I don't know if I use that word about myself. But I think that that leadership uh, ability or, or characteristic is, is really important. Um, I'm often being called a fixer or a builder. So mm -hmm. I often get roles or teams that need to be transformed um, or are failing either for many different reasons. And so how you kind of bring together teams that are broken or bring together teams that are not collaborating or build them into something that is completely different, transform mm -hmm. them into a successful operation. Um, and then I would say compassion or empathy mm -hmm. is something that uh, people will say about me a lot. And then I would say those are positive, right? <laughs> if I'm to be honest, I think the things that I have that are probably challenges that, that people kind of love hate is I move very fast. Mm -hmm. I'm very quick to absorb new ideas and catch on to things and want to move forward. And so I have a bias for action. Um, I have a bias for impact and yep. sometimes I move too fast. So they'll say, Oh, there she goes again. You know, she's, she's going, so she's running hundred miles an hour and we can barely keep up. Um, but I will say the thing I do hear people say is that if you need something done, you know, get Margaret involved, like she'll get shit done or she'll make sure it happens or she'll have your back. And I think that's nice really important. Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, I don't know if it's, it's the inspiration. It's more, 
I allow you to try new things and, and I'll, I'll provide you the air cover if needed, right? So go, go be you and explore and just take risks and let's just go for it, right? And if, if something goes wrong, that's, I've got your back. We'll fix that. Now you shared your MBTI profile with us and you are an INFJ, INFJ, uh, which is also known as the advocate. So you're quite balanced, in fact, but you're a bit more introvert, uh, intuitive, more on the emotional side, a bit more than on the rational side, and, and a bit more judging than perceiving. The advocate, the strengths, the typical strengths of an advocate, and then you have to tell me where that, um, where that resonates with you are, that they can be creative, insightful, inspiring, convincing, decisive, determined, passionate, and altruistic. So mm. how, does that, how does that fit you? Yes. <laughs> Those are perfect. No, it's a weird combination, isn't it? I think the mm -hmm. thing that hit me uh, when I, I just redid that profile is that I always am like 50% everything. It's very strange. So I have this incredible drive and assertion and impact, but I can't do it without caring for people. So it's this mm -hmm. constant balancing act. And the same with the introversion, extroversion is that if people see me day to day, they will assume I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. um, and I have no problem getting on stage or I don't have a problem going in and meeting new people. But where I draw my energy or how I have to regroup has to be alone. Like I get overstimulated really fast, yeah. right? So I have to know when to recharge. I have to know when to... Um, you know, go back to kind of my, my cone of silence. So I'm not a partier, like, you know, true extroverts get energy from going out. It's like, oh man, it's Friday. Let's go out and, you know, yep. party and dance. It's like, I will do the opposite. I'll go home, have a glass of wine and sit on my deck. Right. And just kind of recharge. <laughs> so now, if, we, if we look at the flip side of the coin, uh, potential weaknesses of uh, advocates mm. and NFGs is that they can be very sensitive extremely private, yeah. perfectionist, that they always need to have a good cause and that they can burn out easily. Which of yeah. these did you have to overcome and, and how did you do that? That's a great question. I think the first one, the sensitivity, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and some of that was forced because of the environments and the industries that I was working in, right? The, the, the old thing of you can't cry at work. Um, I did. I, I remember when I was young, I cried very, very easily. And now... Mm -hmm. um, other than Disney movies, which my children will tell you, I cry within the first five minutes, but take Disney movies out of it for a minute. I actually you know, feel like I have pretty good control of my sensitivities in a work mm -hmm. environment. So I did have to learn, I think, to do that. But I think the point with that is you don't want to lose the empathy that goes with it. You need to mm -hmm. remove the defensiveness or the oversensitivity or the reaction that yeah. comes with that, right, is what you have to grow. And then the other one would be... Um, what was the, the last one about burnout? Oh, yeah. absolutely. So I will go, 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 go. And I have to remind myself to take a break, right? Slow down. Not only because I need everybody else to catch up sometimes, but because I need myself to catch yeah. up and take care of myself. And so how I can get re-energized or just give myself a break I don't know if it's an INFJ or if it's just a, a woman thing or, or whatever, but I think, you know, allowing ourselves to take care of ourselves is always a last priority, especially if I think for moms, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I have to remind myself that I have to be healthy 
both spiritually, emotionally, and physically, or I guess that's three things, not both, um, to take care of everybody else and to do my job. So I, I would say that's something I, I continue to work on. I'm not going to say I, I got there, but I've gotten better. So what is it that really drives you? At the end of the day, if you close your laptop and, and, and you, mm -hmm. you switch off, uh, what, what, what is it that really drives you and that makes you happy? And that you can say, well, this was really a great day at work again. I want to make the world a better place. And I, yeah. I want to help people find their true passion. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the, the thing that brings me just fundamental joy is when you see another person have that aha moment that you've helped them kind of discover that true, authentic self in themselves, right? Like whether yep. it's their, their job, whether it's the talent, whether it's whatever. I mean, I can, I had a call with a young woman that I hadn't talked to for two years that was working at Red Hat and she had been a computer science major. She had a master's in computer science and she was miserable. Mm -hmm. And when you're miserable, you're not successful. And she was working hard. She was getting her job done, but she was miserable. And I had this meeting with her where I said, what is your dream? Like what, if, if nobody mattered, if your parents yep. didn't matter, if money didn't matter, what would you be doing? Mm -hmm. And she'd say, well, I always wanted to be an actress or I'd love to do something where like I bring people together in events like event management or something that's more, you know, collaborative and, and more on the social side and, and, and on that. And I said, well, then go do that. Right. And I didn't think about it. She left Red Hat. She went to California and I hadn't talked to her for two years. I talked to her last night. She is doing events for AI and VCs and all this in Silicon Valley. So she's still using her technology background because she was great in data science and artificial intelligence. But she's living her dream. And the first thing she said to me, I actually am getting chills. She said to me last night, she said, thank you for giving me permission to, to pursue my dream. And I said, I don't think you needed my permission. Clearly you knew what you were doing. But the answer was she did. She needed someone just to say, go do it. And I think that's true for a lot of people. That's what brings me joy is validating people, seeing people fulfill themselves and making a difference. And I would say that you know, on top of that is I love growing businesses, making a difference, making customers successful and seeing something grow. That gives me huge satisfaction. I have to have an impact. So whether it's a personal impact or a business impact, everything I do needs to somehow change the world, even if it's one person at a time. Okay, great. So Margaret, you shared with me that you have no less than five children, which is uh, quite amazing. Correct. So, <laughs> no less so, than. What are the values that you have passed on to your uh, children? What are the values that are core to you and your family? The most important thing, honestly, that I want for all my children and to pass on is to be true to them. Whatever gives them passion and joy, that's what I want them to do. And so when they were growing up, I didn't care what it was, right? If it was sports, if it was music, if it was theater, if it was you know, math, art, you know, I want them to pursue that. And I want them to become obviously productive members of society. Ideally, I don't want to support them forever, but, um, you know, it's not worth it if they're not being authentic. And there's been so many different journeys. I could go through each child and how they've discovered themselves. Right. But at the end of the day, that value of being your authentic self, 
Um, and the journey you go on to discover that and stay true to that is really important. Um, there's other values like family, I think is a huge value just by itself, right? How we stay connected as a family, how you support each other as a family, um, how you come out of crises together as a family, um, loyalty, right? How you show loyalty to someone. And then I think courage would mm -hmm. be a value I would bring up. I think that we don't often talk about courage in life, but I think it's courage to stand up for what's right. And that would probably be the last value that just popped into my head, which is that, I don't know if it's, it's not righteousness or maybe justice or fairness. They're, all my children have this sense of everyone should be treated the same. And it's a very hard um, mindset to go into the world right now, especially, right? Where you just really struggle with injustice. Mm -hmm. And so how do you turn that mindset into something positive? How do you become a model of how you want people to live? And, and some of that came from, you know, we lived overseas. Um, we were exposed to cultures of all different kinds, and that was very intentional. Um, my friends are from all different cultural and, you know, ethnic backgrounds. Um, all the kids had to learn a language. So, you know, we have this myriad of languages, Japanese, German, Chinese, Spanish, French, whatever. Um, and they all needed to travel. Um, so, you know, they've all traveled to different parts of the world or the different parts of the United States. And so having that outside in perspective, having that compassion for people mm -hmm. different from you and, yep. and having that, that feeling of it's not okay for someone to be treated differently because of how they look or act or feel or believe. And so that is almost the core um, because I want them to be authentic, but I also want everyone else to be able to be authentic and we should be protectors of that. So we talked about the values that you pass on to your children and probably to your teams as well. Let's also talk about the, the input you, you received yourself. I mean, did you have important mm. mentors in your life and, and what did you learn from them? Can you give a couple of examples maybe? I think the first great mentor I had was my musical theater or drama teacher in one of the high schools I went to, the last high school. I went, we moved 13 times as a kid, so it was, I was quite uh, all over the place. Yeah, it was a lot. But this drama teacher had such an impact on his students, and it was a safe place. You know, the, the, the drama uh, department was like this weird, safe place. And I remember him telling me one time, if someone just saw you walking down the street, you're kind of average. You know, you're, you're pretty smart and you're okay looking. He goes, but when you want to be, you become magnificent. And, you know, he had given me a role in a musical where I had this moment of being on stage in this amazing dress. And it was not me. I was a tomboy. I did sports, right? And all of a sudden I became this like elegant, beautiful creature, right? But he saw that in everyone. And, and it really impacted me because it, it made me believe that maybe I wasn't you know, ugly and too tall and all those things that I told myself over the years or that I'd heard from other people, right? So he really impacted me in a very positive way. Um, I had a great aunt uh, that we called Aunt Bot. Um, and she was this like five foot two, um, you know, little thing. But she taught me also that authenticity. Like she never stopped loving or believing. And she had more heartbreak and, and tragedy in her life and yet she never wavered, right? She stayed true to who she was. She never stopped loving people around her. 
Um, and she taught me the value of, of that authenticity and that just absolute love. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last one I would say was my first boss after college in Detroit, when I worked in Detroit in automotive, uh, a woman who taught me that the most powerful formula mm-hmm. is femininity plus competency equals power. Mm-hmm. And through her just way of living, she showed me that your feminine power can be whatever it is that is authentic to you. Everyone's femininity is a little different, but it's that combination of things that truly makes you powerful and not powerful in an aggressive way, but powerful in a way that influences, that allows you to have a seat at the table. And at that time, it was really important because in the 80s, when I got out of college and started working, you were really told you had to act and dress and be a man. And that was the only way to be successful. It was very confusing, right? And she said, no, you know, that's bullshit. What you'd have to do is be a woman in whatever that means for you. And then just be you and be competent. And that's when you're successful. And I have carried that and used that with my own mentoring a million times. And, And when I start to falter, I go back to those words. And we stayed incredibly close friends until the moment she died just a couple of years ago. And I still think of her, honestly, every single day. Okay. Margaret, in your life, if it really boils down to the most essential things, what is it that you're most grateful for in your life? I am most grateful for my children, mm-hmm. my family, and just the incredible bounty (laughs) that I have. Like I have just been blessed um, with amazing children and with opportunities that have presented themselves. I mean, the world has just been really um, wonderful to me. I mean, I just, I I can't be thankful enough for my health, for my job, for my family. I, I just, honestly, you know, especially in this time, I wake up every morning just feeling blessed. Even on the worst days, I have to remind myself how incredibly fortunate I am. Uh, And I I really do, I I do feel like I have just been given so many opportunities. And I guess the thing I'm grateful for is I knew to walk through those doors every time they opened. So So what was the the worst thing that happened to you? And how how did you overcome that? Because I mean, it's, it's not, life is not a dream. So we all have our, our bad things that happen to us. So so what did you have to overcome and what, did, what can you share about that that you learned? I think the first thing I had to overcome was my childhood of being moved every year and a half. Like I, I didn't have a place I was from. Um, I was constantly changing a little bit who I was to fit in. Uh, and you come out of that environment and you get to decide how, what you're going to take from that, right? I could be angry. I could be frustrated. I could be many things. I decided to use the values that I gained. So I I looked at that and said, well, what did that give me? One, it gave me incredible empathy, right? I can relate to people because I had to figure people out so quickly. Um, I can go into a room and immediately know who would allow me to stand next to them or talk to them. Or I can look into a room and see someone lonely. I know what that feels like. Right. And I will go up to those people and say, hey, could could I sit next to you or could I you know, stand next to you or talk to you or whatever? Um, and it allowed me to understand that I could go to any environment and be successful, even if that's not the way I felt at the time. So I would say that was really hard. 
I, I think there's other things that are more, I mean, I could go professional or personal, but you know, my father was an alcoholic that had huge impact on me. And there's a whole bunch of different things we could talk about with that. But I think for that, it was learning that, you know, how to build self-esteem, how to build your confidence and, and how to not get caught up in that, that whole spiral that, that addiction has. Um, and then professionally, you know, I would say some of the hardest things have been that, that balance or being in corporate cultures that were not very forgiving uh, of a working mother, um, right. especially when my children were small. Uh, those were really difficult times, right? And, and I, I speak to a lot of young parents, I would say, not just mothers, but parents who, you know, struggle with that. And I'm, I'm so thankful that we have a culture that is very flexible for them. But I've worked for cultures that were not. Um, that demanded you, you know, are in your seat. And, and I had to find a way to say, this is not the right company for me, even if the job is amazing and maybe they're going to be these huge successful companies. I can't work here because it's making me break my core values that we just yeah. talked about, right? And so I think we're constantly overcoming those things. And, and if we aren't grounded in who we are and our core values, it's very easy to not know how to make those decisions that are best for you and your family. And I don't think we're taught that growing up. Like no one teaches you like know your nope. core values, know your authentic <laughs> self. And so we have to build that muscle, right? And so I think that is so important because then you're able to teach your children those things. You're able to lead people with that same level of compassion and you're able to know when to say, no, I'm sorry, this doesn't, you know, align with my core values. Good luck with that. So let's, let's end this wonderful conversation, uh, Margaret, with um, looking back a little bit. And um, if you would have to advise your younger self or somebody who is uh, 15 mm -hmm. years younger than, than us and who wants, who has the aspiration, the ambition to become uh, a chief digital officer in a big <laughs> tech company. What would the advice be that you would give to, uh, to such a person? To myself and to most people, you know, much younger, I would say, you are good enough just the way you are. Mm -hmm. Go for it. Because I will tell you that it sounds too simple, I know, but I think that there is a fundamental challenge that people have. And this is globally, I don't care what culture, country, language we're, we're speaking in, that feeling that I am fundamentally okay the way I am and I can do anything. Yeah. Everyone needs to hear that and everyone needs to believe it. And so if there's a mantra to give yourself right now, it's I am good enough and I deserve it. Go for it. Do it and let your light shine. Okay. On that note, Margaret, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this uh, conversation. There's a lot of things Mutual. Uh, in there. So, uh, so thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>